no steel frame structures um, that existed during the Canterbury earthquakes were demolished after the earthquakes due to problems with the structural steel. There were some uh, steel structures which were demolished, but uh, often this was because of uh, excessive foundation settlement. Kia ora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. Let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Kia ora. I'm Kawa, Hera's manager, Structural Systems. Today, we are talking with Greg McRae, Associate Professor at Department of Civil and Natural Resources Engineering at the, at the University of Canterbury. He has been working on low-damage seismic approach for structures since 1994. We will talk about low-damage seismic solutions for steel structures. This topic will be presented in three parts. Please join us to listen to the first part about general overview on low-damage seismic solution. For those who may um, have not heard about low-damage seismic solution, would you tell us what low-damage seismic solutions are? Um, before I tell you what a uh, low-damage seismic solution is, I think I should probably just uh, review how we currently design uh, structures at the moment. So the current design approach for structures around the world, such as uh, buildings and bridges, um, is that they should be able to uh, sustain or uh, be subject to a significant earthquake without killing anyone or without damaging neighboring property. So these structures are designed so they will not collapse under the sort of uh, uh, design level event. However, they are expected often to ex experience significant damage. Uh, we could design them so that they didn't have a lot of damage, but usually this is a lot more costly. And so people don't like to pay for this. And so the current approach is designed to design them so that they're much weaker than uh, they need to be to remain elastic. Um, and uh, so um, uh, th this can cause a damage. Now, repairing this damage may involve major expense and inconvenience, and it may even mean that the structure has to be demolished. So even if lives are saved, a damaged structure causes major disruption to society. Uh, in these current structures that we design, while they provide safety under the anticipated shaking, they are damage prone. We can refer to them as damage prone structures. And this is, uh, this is what's done everywhere. Now, after we've had an earthquake uh, and people look at the behavior of structures and see this damage, uh, often they're shocked. Uh, they think that uh, if a building is designed by an engineer, it should have no damage. And this is far from the truth. Uh, this is not what the uh, standards around the world uh, say. Um, uh, and because of this, uh, public opinion is often that engineers are not doing a good job with their designs, uh, even if there's just a little bit of damage. And so because we've got this sort of mismatch between public perception and, and what engineers are, are paid to do, um, there's an impetus to, if we can, design structures to perform better than that implied by uh, the minimum provisions in building standards. 
at the same time, still there's often a reluctance to um, pay for this. If we construct economical and dependable low damage structures, these structures should be able to be used almost immediately after a major earthquake. And this has huge societal benefits. Uh, they have few repair costs. There are no costs for relocation of the occupants and business continuity can be maintained. So there are hopefully no job losses and the business can remain competitive in the global marketplace. Uh, a few years ago, uh, our group considered a number of words to describe these better behaving structures. And we published the term low damage in a workshop entitled Re Research Directions for Steel Structures uh, at the University of Canterbury in April 2010. I don't think it has been uh, referred to before then, it may have been, and uh, we may have come up with a word. Um, I just haven't seen it uh, published before then. Uh, and we were considering a number of words at the time. It was, it was a discussion with a number of people. Um, at the time, the word was also defined so that people could understand what it meant. And the way it was defined, it basically meant that under a 2,500 year event, we should have immediate occupancy. It didn't mean fully operational, but it meant uh, immediate occupancy under a two and a half thousand year event. So the word is, uh, has meaning and it has definition. Others are working on, on uh, they want to give it other definitions, um, but that's what it was at that time. Uh, the term low damage does not only relate to the structure and the structural framing, it also relates to the floor slab, to the foundation, and the other elements of the system. So uh, in a building, the elements which are not part of a structural skeleton, they're not part of the, the frame or the slab, uh, or can, can be called non-skeletal elements or NSEs. Uh, and these non-skeletal elements um, uh, can be both those which do not contribute to the lateral response of a structure during earthquake shaking. Uh, and these are called non-skeletal, non-structural elements because they don't contribute to the response, so they have no structural effect. Uh, and we also have non uh, or elements which do contribute to the lateral response. And some of these may be partitions or facade elements which are connected between floors of a structure. And these can be called non-skeletal structural elements. Actually, it's a good uh, definition, I believe. It, it's, uh, it's a new definition, uh, something uh, the group, well, the, the robust group actually came up with this uh, yeah. last year, and it's uh, the uptake around the world already is, is quite high. Um, so it's a, it's a result of the uh, work that the HERA has been sponsoring. We're getting some of these uh, new definitions. Um, a number Great. of years ago, uh, the term resilient society was proposed by uh, my friend uh, Michel Bruno um, and he described uh, several ways that could resilience could be uh, provided to a, a, a structure. Um, one way is you could provide lots of insurance so that once it was damaged and had to be replaced you could rebuild it. Uh, another way is to make the structure so that any damaged parts could be easily replaced so you have replaceable elements. And a third way is you can make the structure so that it has almost no damage. And if it has almost no damage, these are, these are what we call the low damage structures. Uh, when we talk about low damage in general, it seems as though 
uh, resilient, low damage and, and replaceable element uh, often used interchangeably, but fundamentally, uh, if you want to be strict about it, they are different. Uh, it should be noted that every structure can be described as being low damage if the shaking level is low enough. And no structure can be described as low damage if the shaking level is high enough. Um, there will be damage. So the, the term low damage needs to be defined in terms of the level of earthquake shaking. Uh, low damage construction can be, uh, or low damage systems or, or, or solutions can be used in all uh, structures and buildings, and not just important buildings such as hospitals. And uh, developers have already found that some, some tenant groups are prepared to pay more for a structure that is described as low damage. Uh, some owner occupiers also desire such structures because there's a lower chance that they will have to re relocate after a major um, event. So that's uh, probably the, the long answer to your short question about what is uh, low damage construction. Um, while steel structures generally responded very well during Canterbury earthquakes, why development and using low damage seismic solution uh, is important? Yes, it, is, it was quite impressive actually that uh, as far as I know, no steel frame structures um, that existed during the Canterbury earthquakes were demolished after the earthquakes due to problems with the structural steel. There were some uh, steel structures which were demolished but uh, often this was because of uh, excessive foundation settlement. Um, other structures did have significant damage. Some of it was due to poor detailing or, or poor materials, but these were able to re be repaired and they stand today almost as a, as a testament of the performance of steel structures. Uh, some steel structures needed to have uh, internal partitions replaced or elevator shafts realigned due to the lateral deformations as a result of uh, major earthquakes, but they're still uh, fully operational today. Um, it was interesting that after the Canterbury earthquake, according to a 2017 report uh, put out by the Quake Center, which I'll refer to later, um, structures with steel seismic frames were used in the rebuild in 80% of the floor area of new construction and if you counted all the structures uh, built um, and you considered gravity steel frames as well, uh, about 95% of the total area of construction used, used uh, steel construction. And so this was uh, a result of the perceived low damage benefits of structural steel buildings without any special techniques. So some people are arguing that uh, without any special considerations, uh, some low damage some some steel structures can behave in a in a low damage way so while they can behave well um, in general we design them for uh, structures for ductility and so ductility means damage uh, if the damage is unacceptably large or difficult to fix then we need to specifically design for better performance and so it's for these structures that we need to understand how to use low damage systems uh, to make sure that we get very good performance, uh, even for steel structures. 
what are the main current issues of low damage seismic solution compared to traditional seismic solutions? Uh, I think I should first uh, tell you uh, three ways you can make a, a structure low damage. One way is uh, that you can make a structure strong enough to remain elastic. This protects the structural framing, um, but care is needed for the, the slabs and non-skeletal elements if, it, if it's a building. And probably um, would be for, for traditional system, making it it's, um, elastic might be expensive. Uh, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, but uh, steps toward this are already done when we specify importance level uh, in the New Zealand approach. So if you were to, we've got importance level uh, two, which is our uh, standard uh, building design. IL-3 is usually stronger and there are other uh, requirements, IL-4. If you were to go up far enough, um, it becomes, uh, it, it can become expensive. But by doing that, we can uh, keep the frame elastic. We've still got to watch the drifts because they affect the non-structural elements. But it's a way to make the uh, frame elastic. And as you say, uh, Kawa, it, it does cost money. Yeah. So the second approach then is to make the structure stiff. And if you make it stiff enough, then it undergoes very small displacements or drifts. Since drift is the parameter which we generally uh, relate to damage, um, even more than acceleration, uh, acceleration uh, sensitive elements can be tied back usually or, or, or some simple techniques to, to uh, avoid acceleration sensitive damage uh, exist. So what we can do is we can um, have small, if we have uh, small drifts, we get small damage. And so by controlling the drift, we can limit the damage. So this is a second way. We can do this with traditional systems. So that's the second way. And the, the third way is to use some sort of special technique or special system. It may be base isolation, it may be viscous dampers, it may be friction systems, rocking systems, special connections or dissipators uh, in order to protect the structure. The uh, requirement here is that the dissipators should not be significantly damaged. Um, and again, if the displacements are large, then care needs to be taken of the building non-skeletal elements. Yeah. So there are three ways to make a, a structure long damage, is to make it strong enough, make it stiff enough, or use special systems. So let's talk about the current issues with some of these ways to make a structure low damage. So first of all, for stiff traditional low damage systems, actually these are very easy. These, for these systems, we don't require any special considerations. They can be simply designed to a lower drift limit. Maybe there's a higher strength associated with that uh, than what is in the, in, in the minimum code level. Uh, and this may cost more due to the uh, extra material uh, required, but it's very simple to do. We can do that right away. If yeah. we use some of the newer or novel low damage systems, uh, these systems are currently generally not specified as acceptable solutions according to the current New Zealand building standards. Uh, therefore, they must satisfy the alternative solution requirements according to New Zealand's performance-based code. And there are a number of challenges with these. 
the main issues regarding these neural novel systems are, uh, are technical, political, and economic. And so let's look at these in turn. The technical issues for the technical uh, the technical issues for these newer systems really just revolve around obtaining trust that these systems can and will be designed and constructed to perform well over the life of the structure. There should be also little damage to the foundations and non-skeletal elements. To develop this trust, we need several things. First one is lots of evidence. We need evidence that these systems will behave every time uh, as we expect under the levels of shaking considered. And it's, this evidence is obtained from experimental testing, analyses, and, and very importantly, field experiences. A number of years ago, speaking to Nick Smith, he's a New Zealand politician, and he was at that time responsible for construction-related issues. And he told me that for any new system coming into New Zealand, that all he was looking for as a, as a minister was evidence that it would always behave well under the expected shaking. Now, this shaking uh, that occurs is not only horizontal in one direction, it's horizontal in two directions, and there's also a vertical component. And some systems may be sensitive to these other directions of shaking. And we need to consider these too if we want to have a robust structure because the earthquake shakes in, in all directions. And while this may seem obvious, we've had a lot of trouble, especially for buckling restrained brace systems, getting evidence of good bi-directional behavior uh, from the groups that advocate these systems. And so there's been a lot of work going on on that. Uh, furthermore, we need to remember that we are concerned about the system, not just about the bare beam column joint. A number of years ago, some people were advocating systems with post-tension beams. And these uh, beams themselves have very low damage if you just test the beam and column. But when you put a slab on them and you push the, put them in a, in a real building, they damage the slab and they push the columns apart. And so these two may not be low damage solutions. The second thing we need for trust is that we need quality control of construction. Special devices and systems are often more delicate and they require more precision in terms of both fabrication and installation than what is commonly used in the construction industry. And so we need to really be very careful with that quality control. For trust, we also need methods to dependably predict the performance, considering the uncertainty. And some, or actually or all of the common uh, displacement prediction methods may not work well for some structures. And this is particularly true for, for short period structures with very pinched hysteresis lips, we can get very large uh, displacement demands. For trust, we need guidance. That guidance has got to be there for engineers and, and builders. Uh, and with that guidance comes design examples, which I know Hera is working on right now. Yeah. And associate, uh, associated uh, training uh, for, for everyone. Which we, uh, we, we have a plan for training engineers and you know, experts uh, related um, to design of flow damage structures. I, I think this is a wonderful uh, initiative, uh, Cohen. I think it's a, a key part of making the system so it's able to be used and accessible. Yeah. Um, okay, and the fifth, uh, fifth point I have for trust, uh, we need a wide dissemination of experiences 
uh, not only from uh, testing, but particularly in actual uh, construction, uh, so that we can identify any quirks with any of these systems. And all new systems have their own quirks. And uh, this is not a, a bad thing. It just means we've got to identify what those quirks are. And so we can uh, mitigate any problems that may result from the, the, the use of uh, the current construction processes as we uh, change towards uh, some of these newer systems. So I think those are the technical issues. Uh, however, technical soundness is not enough. We also have uh, political issues. And the political ones, some of them are related to the technical ones. Uh, there needs to be, first of all, evidence of uh, technical soundness and performance. Uh, for a politician to make a, a decision, uh, they need to hear that this is good and sound and all these uh, technical uh, issues have been solved. We need the tech, uh, design guidelines, um, but we don't only need the gu guidelines, we need these to be incorporated into standards so that uh, uh, there's a level playing field and everyone understands what really is the way to design these uh, things and there's a, a degree of uh, uh, legal weight behind the provisions that are specified. Uh, these design guidelines are essential and not only for engineers but also for building consent officials and, and reviewers uh, to feel comfortable uh, specifying and approving new systems. The third political thing I think we really need is a very rigorous uh, review process, uh, more rigorous than for traditional structures because we're using something new and novel which uh, the construction industry is not usually used to. And this may cost some money, might not cost money, it depends how you do it. Um, a review really should be conducted by experts. It shouldn't be conducted by a friend of the designer who undertakes the review in order to learn about how to design this new system. And I know that that, that happens. That's why I've said that. Um, exactly. uh, other countries have standard approaches to do this. Um, and they have a standing group of experts who provide uniform and consistent reviews around the whole country. And what this does is it, it means that, again, there's a level playing field. And when there's an, a, a common problem identified from a number of designers around the place with the same problems, then some uh, notes or memoranda or something can go out to help move the whole industry up. We don't have that at, at the moment, but other countries do. I know Japan has it. I know in Jakarta, Indonesia, there's a group for any uh, special building or any building bigger than 30 stories, uh, there's a, it's got to be assessed by a group of experts. And these are the same experts who evaluate all these structures. In Myanmar, they have it. Uh, in different parts of the US, do it too. But New Zealand has no such system currently. And I, I think this is a, a weakness of our current New Zealand system. So we've got technical issues, political issues, and the last one is economic issues. Well, really, that's simply uh, cost. Um, if we use some of these newer systems, uh, there can be an increased cost. This is often because contractors are not familiar with the systems. However, as the systems become more and more used, uh, the risks go down and the costs tend to decrease. So in summary, for systems to be used more, 
Uh, we need uh, standardized, accepted, and simple design construction guides and examples. We need trained personnel. We need a robust review system. We need a low total, total cost. We need uh, lots of well-advertised evidence that we have a good system. And it's, uh, again, technical, political, and economic. Why, after Canterbury earthquakes, using low-damage seismic solutions has been increased in New Zealand? Yes, low damage structures have increased in New Zealand and they've increased in a number of ways. And I'll describe those ways and then I'll uh, try and describe some of the reasons. Uh, first of all, some of the most damage prone construction methods were or have been eliminated and some of these methods are currently no longer uh, used. They may come back though. Uh, unreinforced masonry was banned under, a number of years ago and uh, a number of these existed when the earthquakes came. These aren't likely to come back because they're banned. The second type of system, which has been uh, un become uncommon, is that high ductility reinforced concrete moment frame structures have been seldom used in the last few years. This is because the perception is that they are very difficult to repair. And as a replacement, steel structures have become popular. Now, steel has this uh, issue, or maybe it's an advantage, uh, that it has a very high strength to stiffness ratio. And this means that frames are often drift controlled. And that means they often have very low ductility demand. And so even without special detailing, steel structures can be quite resilient. Yeah. So we have a number of these which are now uh, built in the, in, the, in the rebuild. We also have a number of special systems. So the opportunity has been there for that to, uh, to, to try different things as we've had the money to rebuild the, the city. So some of these systems have used friction, others have used uh, rocking, rocking frames, others have used base isolation, others lead dissipators, others viscous dissipators and perhaps uh, buckling restrained braces could be regarded as a low damage system. Outside of this range of low damage structures, there are also structures with replaceable elements. And these include some of the eccentrically braced frames with replaceable links, and, and there are others as well. So we, uh, after the earthquakes, we were also interested into why these structural forms were chosen. And there were many rumors and campfire stories, uh, people stating things like, uh, some were saying things like concrete structures were not economical uh, to repair. And some people saying, uh, that's why we moved to steel. And others saying, hey, actually, uh, there's still a lot of concrete structures being built. And that was true too. Yeah. Uh, some people were saying shock fabrication and, and site bolting results in high quality and fast construction. Uh, some people saying Christchurch was a disaster. We don't want any more damage like we saw there. Uh, there were lots of things uh, being said. And uh, so uh, the issue is that these rumors really don't answer the question of why the structural systems changed after Christchurch. But we were able to address this question when uh, Professor Michel Bruno came to visit us at the University of Canterbury. And Michel is the founder of the US government funded 
multidisciplinary earthquake engineering research center, which is based in uh, Buffalo. And it focused on societal resi resilience to earthquakes. And so we worked together and made a, a report about why these things changed. So in this report, first of all, we gathered quantitative information about what was built. And it turned out that about the same number of steel structures and concrete structures was being built. Uh, the floor area of the concrete ones was much less. They were generally very small structures, but there's still a lot being built. Uh, then we spoke to the engineers who designed the majority of these structures, as well as project management, architectural and client, client representatives, and asked them who decided and how they decided what was to be built. Uh, the report is available. Uh, it's been downloaded over 7,300 times. Uh, it's available on the Quake Center website. Uh, it's been translated even into Chinese, so it's getting a fair bit of uh, readability. And uh, so the, the key findings of the report are that widely used systems in terms of floor area and base isolation, this is in terms of decreasing floor area. So base isolation was uh, the biggest in terms of the new structural systems, uh, buckling restrained braces next, then uh, concrete walls, then steel moment frames, including those with friction connections, then EBFs with and without replaceable links. The decision about which structural system to use for each specific building depended on many factors. <laughs> it depended on also who the person was who was making the decision. It was found that the engineer chose the structural system in the majority of cases. And then the next most common group that uh, decided the system was the owner. And the owner's request was lowest cost. So that was still there. Then the next, the lowest group was the owner selecting a low damage solution. And below that, there were owners requesting IL3 buildings. So while the structural engineer has a significant say about what is uh, built, the decision about the system is not only their decision, it was made as part of a group. And that group includes the client, the architect, and other parties like the project manager and the quantity surveyor and considerations of cost, construction speed, perceptions of performance, and building post-event operation, uh, likely tenants' desires, the engineering culture, the time since the last nearby earthquake, the cash flow of the client, and other factors contributed. But one of these other factors we found was that one of the engineer's brother-in-laws owned a company which made a certain type of product and they liked to work with that person because they trusted them. So there are all these things which happen in, in any society, I think, which uh, affect the actual decision. The shift toward steel structures was attributed to a combination of factors. Um, these include the perceptions of the low damage and repairability of steel structures, the low price of steel compared to several years before. This was a major uh, effect, I think. Um, and it, I think it's important to note that the steel structures didn't just start to be built before the Canterbury earthquakes. The last two big structures built before the earthquakes were, were, were of structural steel. So the structural steel construction had already started. 
Uh, other reasons for the, the, the selection of steel included the perception of, of the fast erection speed of structural steel, the availability of new and economical flooring systems, and some very good work had been done in New Zealand to get systems which could be used fast and widely and which connected well to uh, steel structures. The advent of economical methods for designing for a fire, again, a lot of work in New Zealand, um, the poor conditions in Christchurch, and this really gave an economic advantage to lightweight structures. Yeah. So the shift toward low damage structures was related also to the New Zealand legislative framework, which allows new systems. Uh, it was related to the advent of low damage technology. So work has been done on low damage technology for the last uh, 10 or 15 years before the earthquakes. And so this was, a lot of this was felt to be mature enough to be able to be implemented directly. If that hadn't been done, it wouldn't have been uh, used. And the availability of some systems with known strength and section overstrength. And this was true for buckling restrained brace systems. So the brace size could be specified at each level separately. And that meant there was very little system overstrength. And so the other members outside the yielding brace could be designed very efficiently. And then the use of steel due to the ease of connecting it. So the whole report on this is downloadable from the uh, Quake Center website. And if people are more interested, uh, they can go there and, and, and search for Christchurch re Rebuild Report uh, by, uh, led by uh, Bruno and McRae. Kia ora. it's Kawa again. We discussed about general overview on low damage seismic solutions. In the next part, we will discuss about various aspects of low damage seismic solutions for steel structures. In the third part, we will focus on optimized sliding hinge joint, which is a low damage seismic solution for steel moment resisting frame structures. Hera is pleased to present a webinar on optimized sliding hinge joint on week 3, November 2020, to share the latest development, modeling, design, seismic loading, and detailing, and key improvement of optimized sliding hinge joint compared to the traditional sliding hinge joint. If you like to know more about this topic or have a question, then please get in touch with myself. My details are in the show notes. Gilda, it is Greg here again, the Innovation and Transformation Architect at Hera. Uh, today's conversation was a great one. It reminded me of a Kyrgyzia quote. This earthquake didn't just break all the records, it also broke some of the rules. A timely reminder that our connection to the academic community via way of university is a really important one. And if you want to get connected in with any of the research that we are up to, or any of our innovation clusters, or those new and fresh perspectives that we are taking on um, in the metal sector, please get in touch with me. My details are in the show notes.